The second reading is from Hebrews chapter 8 and can be found on page 1206. Now, the main point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already priests who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator um, is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbours or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Well, good evening. It would be great if uh, you could keep your Bibles open <clears throat> at that passage just uh, read to us on page 1206 from Hebrews uh, chapter 8. Let's spend a moment before we look together at the passage and ask God to speak to us and to challenge our hearts. So let me pray. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. God, our Father, as we meet this evening to study this passage together, may we remember these words. Speak, we pray, to each one of us this evening. Nourish and teach us by your Holy Spirit, so we may be equipped for serving you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to do a little bit of a, a history of art quiz before we kick off. And I'm going to ask whether anybody knows who painted this picture. 
Anyone recognise it? You might recognise it. I wonder if you know who painted it. It's a painting that hung in my grandfather's home and probably hung in members of his family before him. There is a bit of a clue on the back of it um, because it says Joshua Reynolds. Not surprisingly, this, uh, this picture caused great excitement uh, in our family. Great excitement, that, that is, until we discovered uh, that it's not actually the real thing. It's not an original, sadly. It's a copy of the real painting. And in fact, it's not even by Joshua Reynolds. Uh, as it happens, the real painting uh, is by somebody called Thomas Lawrence. And it sits today in the home of the Earl of Durham. And this is a picture of one of his ancestors. The painting of, is of a little boy aged about seven called Charles Lampton. Uh, and actually, if you look at the original, this is a rather inferior, pale imitation uh, of the real thing. Uh, the real painting is far bigger, far better, and vastly more valuable. Well, the writer to the Hebrews uh, in our passage this evening really has one single aim. He wants to prove beyond doubt to his readers the vast superiority of Jesus Christ. As we've seen over recent weeks, it's a theme that runs through the whole of the book of Hebrews. Christ Jesus is not an imitation, a counterfeit, or a copy, or a shadow, but rather Jesus Christ is the real thing, surpassing all that has gone before. So tracing back through Hebrews, we can follow <clears throat> this recurring theme the writer tells us in chapter 1 that Jesus is superior to angels. In chapter 3, we learn that Jesus is superior to Moses, that great leader who led God's people out of Egypt, the great giver of the law. We read that Jesus in chapter 4 is greater than Joshua, Joshua who brought God's people safely into the promised land. He's greater than Aaron, that first high priest anointed by God in Exodus 28. Jesus, says the writer in Hebrews, is superior to all of these great people who have gone before. Well, as we learned last week, Hebrews uh, was written to first century converts to Christianity. And these early Christians had faced extreme opposition and brutal persecution for turning away from Judaism and following Jesus Christ. They'd faced assault, prison, hardships, because of their faith. They departed in allegiance from the centuries-old traditions of Judaism, traditions relying heavily on temple worship, ritual and obedience to the law. It was immensely tough and costly following Christ for these early Christians. Well, perhaps it's therefore little wonder in the face of all this opposition that the early Christians were tempted to look wistfully back at the temple, uh, to look back at all that had been familiar and comfortable, the rituals, the ceremonies, which families had followed for centuries before them. Maybe they'd begun to ask themselves, is it really worth all this hardship? Is it really worth going all of this through all this pain? It's just too difficult, too costly, too dangerous. Is it worth following Jesus Christ? Uh, what was actually wrong with all that had gone before? 
but in giving their obedience once again to the temple and to the high priest and temple worship, they were doing so. As they were doing that, they were drifting away from a gospel of grace, turning their backs on their salvation through Christ. So the writer of the Hebrews challenges these early Christians in uh, verse 1 of chapter 8 in front of us. He's asking, how can you possibly go back when you have the real thing, the perfect, authentic high priest who serves in heaven uh, rather than continuing temple worship? Well, imagine, if you will, that the Earl of Durham one day bequeaths to me the real original painting of Charles Lampton. What will I do with it? Will I store it in my uh, attic or put it in the garage? Will I continue uh, to enjoy this small, imperfect copy? Uh, Will I perhaps give away the real thing or just ignore it? Well, of course I won't. Uh, Now that I've been gifted the real thing, surely I'm going to uh, embrace it. I'm going to give it pride of place. I'm going to hang it where everybody can enjoy it. And actually, this copy that I've had all of these years, surely it'll be discarded in favor of the real thing. Well, the writer to the Hebrews is saying much the same. Now that we have the real thing, Jesus Christ, don't go back to the copy. Go to the real thing. So chapter 8 that we're looking at together this evening gives us and the original readers of of this letter reasons why Jesus is the real thing. And chapter 7, we looked at last Sunday, uh, identifies the worker, the Lord Jesus, the great high priest, and the superiority of his priesthood over all the others. Chapter 9 next week is going to go on and describe his work, offering himself once for all. But here in chapter 8, where we find ourselves this evening, the focus is on the workplace of the worker, Jesus Christ. According to verse 2, Jesus serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. So first of all, Christ's workplace. Look down again at verses 1 to 2. Now the main point of what we're saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves In the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by a mere human being. Jesus Christ's heavenly work is performed, as we'll see, in the real presence of God. And Jesus, we read, is seated there at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. I suppose one thing that we notice, uh, we question, is why is he seated And he's seated surely because the work that he has done is finished. Unlike in the the Old Testament temple. Uh, So we read uh, in in, uh, Hebrews uh, chapter 1 verse 3 that after Jesus had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Jesus' work of purification has been completed. His work is finished. But by contrast, in the Old Testament temple, the high priest was only allowed into the sanctuary once a year. Furthermore, there were no seats. There were no resting places. 
Why? Well, because under these old arrangements, priests had to continue their work day after day, year after year, continuing to offer sacrifices by way of atonement for sin. Just look uh, down with me at verse 5. The temple priests, it says, they serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. It's a copy or a visual aid, if you like, of what is perfected in heaven. Like, rather like my painting, temple worship is a copy, an image of reality. It was simply a reflection of the true sanctuary where God in all his splendor, majesty and power dwells. Let's just pause and uh, think about uh, the temple for a moment. In Exodus, the Israelites, under God's detailed instructions, built a tabernacle in the desert. It was here that God was present uh, among his people. Later, the tabernacle gave way to the temple, again built to careful and precise instructions. Here, once again, God came to dwell among his people. And in Hebrews chapter 9, which we're going to come to next week, we're reminded that although priests were allowed in the outer room of the temple, only a high priest could enter the inner room, and then just once a year on the Day of Atonement, and never without enormous ritual, which involved sacrifices and offerings. And this temple conveyed a double message to the Jews. First of all, the temple... Uh, and the tabernacle before it was a visual reminder to all that God is with us. God came to be among his people. But it also conveyed another message, and it was this, don't get too close. God is with us, but it doesn't mean that we can just simply walk into his presence. Don't get too familiar. The high priest's work was never done. He was always at work in the temple, making sacrifices to atone for the people's sins. But in Hebrews 7.27, the writer says this, unlike the other high priests, he does not need, that's Jesus, does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So the writer of the Hebrews says in chapter 8, verse 1, that the need for high priests, the need for temple worship, has been swept away once and for all. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Jesus, the true high priest, is seated in heaven. His work is done. It's completed. And so there's no longer a need for a high priest or indeed a temple because Jesus has come and surpassed all this. He is the real thing. So Jesus is there serving in the sanctuary right now, today. Jesus is a real living person in a real place, mediating with God on our behalf. So what's the implication for us? What does this mean for you and for me? Well, surely when we come to God through Jesus, our high priest, which we do in prayer, what it means is that we're being ushered into the real presence of God. Because Jesus Christ, through whom we come, is sitting in the presence of God. And he escorts us 
as we pray into God's presence. He is bringing our prayers to God. Well, I wonder whether we ever stop to appreciate the impact and the true weight of this. If we do, shouldn't this transform and revolutionise our attitude to prayer? When we pray, we're not getting halfway to God. Our prayers aren't bouncing off the ceiling or falling on deaf ears. No, what this passage tells us is because of our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, we have full, uninterrupted access into God's presence when we pray. We don't have to wait 364 days to enter God's presence. We don't need a priest to offer prayers on our behalf. Amazingly, we can pray wherever we are, as often as we wish, at any time. We don't need to perform endless sacrifices or go through any particular rituals. The work has been done, and it means that however sinful we are, if we are Christian believers, we can come to Jesus freely and ask him, as it were, to apply the benefits of the cross for us. And through him, we can draw near to God. Well, I don't know what pressures uh, you're under at the moment, what challenges or difficulties you're facing at home, uh, in our families, at work, schools, uh, in, in friendships, maybe suffering with illness or bereavement. We all carry problems. We all face problems. But whatever problems we face, one of the great encouragements from this passage is that we're never alone. Wherever I am, whatever I face... I can pour out my heart in prayer 24-7, day by day. And as I do so, I know that I'm being carried into God's presence. I can lay my burdens at the feet of the risen Lord Jesus as he sits at the right hand of the throne in heaven. That's a wonderful promise, isn't it? I have direct access to the sanctuary. I have constant access to the heavenly sanctuary because of what Christ has done for me. It's immensely powerful and an immense privilege. So firstly, Christ is at work today, right now in heaven, interceding for me and for you. He's the eternal high priest, as the song goes, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. So Christ's workplace, and secondly, Uh, The second point we draw from uh, Hebrews 8 is a new and better covenant. A new covenant that we read in verse 6, which is established on better promises. But in fact, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, since the new covenant is established on better promises Jesus' work as high priest is superior to that of the Old Testament priests as much as the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. So we're confronted here with two covenants. There's the old covenant, which we see in verse 9. That is the covenant that God made through Moses with his people on bringing them out of Egypt. The promise that he would be with them and that they would live in obedience to him. 
And we're reminded of this covenant in Jeremiah 7, 23. God, speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, says this, Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all that I command you, that it may go well with you. Well, there are always two parties to a covenant. A covenant uh, is a legal promise to carry out certain acts or to refrain from doing certain things. God promises, on the one hand, faithfulness and blessing to his people. He requires that they, in turn, refrain from disobedience and they walk in obedience to him, obeying his commands. Well, I wonder whether uh, you've ever been in the situation of going into a shop, taking something from the shelves or off the rack, and taking it over to the till, only to find that by the time you get there, you don't actually have the money to pay for it. And it's rather embarrassing, isn't it? Because you have to turn around, past the queue of people that has formed behind you, to go and put it back on the shelves. Well, in some ways, this is a picture of what's being described here in verse 9 in our passage. God made a promise with the people of Israel when he led them out of Egypt, but they couldn't fulfill their side of the agreement. Uh, Keep obedient. They couldn't keep obedient. They couldn't, as it were, pay. Jeremiah 7 continues like this. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backwards and not forwards. There was something wrong with the old covenant. And we read in verse 8 that God found fault with the people. The fault he found is called sin. And it's not that God was at fault, but rather the people. God's people were unable to be faithful to him because of their sinfulness and their disobedience. And you remember, I'm sure before Moses even returned from uh, Mount Sinai, having received the Ten Commandments, God's people down below had disobeyed. They'd been unable to keep their side of the arrangement, unable to remain faithful and obedient to God. And throughout the Old Testament, sin was the unresolved problem. We see that time and time again. We saw it first in the Garden of Eden. We saw Cain's jealousy of his brother Abel in Genesis 4. We see it with Noah's drunkenness in Genesis 9. Despite a fresh start after the flood, sin had travelled with Noah, as it were, in the ark. We see it through Abraham, through Moses, through David, through Solomon, time and time again, all great and godly men, yet all sinful and unable to keep their side of the covenant. Well, let's just return back briefly to that shop illustration. And imagine now, if you will, that we're back in the shop, we've approached the counter, uh, we're finding we've got no money to pay for the item. Imagine this time, we get to the front of the queue, and the owner of the shop behind the till says, don't worry, have it on me. I will pay for this. I'll settle your debt. Well, that is a picture of what's being described here in verse 10. In these words taken from Jeremiah's prophecy, this is the covenant, a new covenant. I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. And what is the covenant? 
I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The writer to the Hebrews reminds them of this Old Testament promise, a promise that a time is coming when this imperfect old covenant will be replaced, will be put right perfectly and forever. And the wonderful news that sits at the heart of the Christian gospel is this, God recognising that we are unable to keep his covenant has intervened and fulfilled both sides of the deal. It's as if he's stepped forward and said, I'm going to pay for you. And this new covenant, this arrangement, we're told in verse 6, is a covenant based on better promises. What are these better promises? Well, when we come to put our trust in the Lord Jesus, when we turn to him as our saviour, our great high priest, we are given all the resources that we need to obey. So on the one hand, we alone cannot remain obedient and faithful to God's covenant. We still sin. But on the other hand, amazingly, God graciously and generously provides us the power to do what is right. We're given the gift of the Holy Spirit, who is at work in our hearts and in our lives, transforming and changing us into Christ's likeness. So God deals with the problem, finally and comprehensively, end to end, from his end to our end. And verse 10 reminds us that the law is written on our hearts and in our minds. Deep in our hearts, we're given this desire and a motivation to become more like Jesus day by day. Uh, We're given this desire to know him better and to love him more, to please him and to obey him. Well, I wonder whether that's been your experience. If you're a Christian, that longing deep within to know the Lord Jesus better and that deep desire to love him and to obey him. Well, we're told that that is the Holy Spirit's work in us. God's law written on our hearts, transforming us and changing us. And look at verse 11. No longer will they teach their neighbours or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Uh, Paul speaks of this transforming work and this change within us in 2 Corinthians 3, where Paul writes this, we are being transformed into the image of Christ with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And Hebrews 8 verse 12, we're told of what the impact and the implication of this is. Verse 12, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. With this new unshakable covenant comes full forgiveness and the assurance that our sins will no longer be remembered. Well, in the Bible, remembering is always active. Uh, It's doing something now on the basis of something in the past. So when God remembers our sin, it means judgment. But wonderfully here, it says that God will no longer remember our sin. It will no longer count against us 
And therefore, we're no longer subject to the judgment and the punishment that our sin deserves. Isn't that wonderful news? Christ on the cross bore the punishment fully and finally for us. Our sin has been dealt with. And therefore, you and I no longer need to carry any of that burden of guilt of our sin. The covenant, the new covenant, works. It deals with that which the old covenant was unable to do. So what's the implication on us? Those of us who know and trust Jesus, despite our sin, are no longer slavishly bound by a set of rules and regulations. Instead, we have his law written on our hearts within us. Well, I wonder whether I feel, whether you feel, that our status before God depends on what I do. Am I burdened with guilt and shame? Maybe carrying the weight of some sin or guilt through life. Well, the wonderful message from Hebrews 8 is that we do not need to be stuck in our sin. There is a solution to the problem of sin. Change has been made possible because of what Christ has done, his completed work, and through the life-changing, ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. Well, I wonder whether we fully understand the extent of this and the impact of what God has done in establishing this new covenant. And then are we perhaps tempted, like those first early uh, Christians to whom Hebrews was written, tempted to think that we can get right with God through other means, that we can access God through many pathways that our sinful world promises? Are we tempted to look elsewhere other than to Jesus, our saviour? Well, Hebrews 8 tells us that Jesus Christ is the only basis that we can be sure our sins are forgiven. It tells us that Jesus Christ is the only means of access to our Heavenly Father. And it tells us that Jesus Christ is the only one who can grant us the Holy Spirit of God to write his law on our hearts and our minds. And Jesus alone can do this because he died and rose again and sits in heaven as our high priest. We have a perfect high priest in heaven, the Lord Jesus. His work of atonement for our sin is completed by his death on the cross. And there's nothing more to add to what he's done. So finally, this new covenant that we've read about this evening is fail-proof. It's sin-proof. If you're a Christian, God has entered into this covenant with you, with me, Our sins are remembered no more. We belong to Christ and this covenant guarantees it. Let's pray. Words from Hebrews chapter 10. So let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess for he who promised is faithful God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is reliable and true. Thank you that our hope is in heaven, where the Lord Jesus, our risen and living great high priest, intercedes for us. Thank you that he has done all that is necessary to bring us into a right relationship with you. Thank you that we are 
ransomed, healed, restored and forgiven. And we pray that whatever we might face over the coming week and beyond, that we might fix our eyes on Christ with confidence, with joy and thankfulness for all that he has done. And we pray this in his name. Amen.